College and Rehab, that's the series we're in. Two years ago, um, there was about 40 or 50 of us that went to Israel. And it was like we were going out to spy out the Holy Land to see if we wanted to kind of do this as a church and, and whatever. And so we're actually going back in August. But we went there, and um, it was amazing. It was, like, it was like seeing the Bible in HD. It's like you're walking around in all the different places in the Bible that you've read about. And uh, we went to all these different kinds of places. One of the places we went to was Mount Carmel where Elijah called down fire on 850 prophets of Baal and Shari or whatever. And, uh, and uh, he calls down fire and, you know, these guys are dancing around, kind of yelling at their God and there's no response. And Elijah gets up there and fire hits the altar and, you know, he slaughters 850 different prophets. So we're out there trying to imagine like what that would have been like and how that would have went down. And, you know, uh, and then we went all these different places where Jesus went and lived and performed miracles and talked to his disciples and, and all of those things. I sat on the steps where Jesus was introduced since his birth at the age of 12, where, his, uh, where Mary and Joseph lost him for three days. And then they found him and said, what are you doing? He goes, don't you know I must be about my father's business? And he's out there, and I was sitting on those, on those steps. And then we, uh, we went out to uh, the Sea of Galilee. That's kind of where we stayed. We went on a cruise in the Sea of Galilee. And uh, it was amazing where Jesus walked on water and calling the storms and all this stuff. And uh, I got a couple of pictures. Uh, the first one, this is, this is the Sea of Galilee. This is like, it was so serene and spectacular, this picture um, says so many things. Like, this is how I felt on the boat. And then they caught it. I think Ernest caught this um, with a photo with a drone or something like that. And, uh, and while, while we were in uh, the Sea of Galilee, um, I, was, I was praying that God would show me something cool. I was praying for, like, a vision. I'm like, God, just show me, like, you know, you walking on water or Peter or somebody or, you know, something. I want to see something on the Sea of Galilee. I'm in Israel, for goodness sakes. And so I was praying that, and, uh, and then uh, there's the next photo where, you know, I took this photo of, you know, kind of the sunset, and, uh, and when I got home, I didn't, I didn't like, necessarily see anything. Um, like, I didn't see a vision of Jesus. I mean, I was literally getting up early in the morning and praying at the Sea of Galilee going, like, looking, <laughs> believing that God might even just show up and start walking or run, you know, wave, I don't know. And, uh, but, I, but I didn't see anything um, while I was there. But when I got back, because I'm 42, and every picture I look at, I go like this. To try, and, to try and see the photos, I actually um, zoomed in on this photo, and that's what I saw. And I saw this, to me, was a man or walking on water. And when I saw it in my, in my phone, it was literally like the Holy Spirit reminded me, hey, I got you. I'll show you. I'll, I'm going to show you something, but it wasn't until I got back that I saw that. And I was blown away, and I showed, like, all these people, this was, I prayed for this, and then Jesus showed me, like, a vision. And, like, I was, I was so pumped about that. And it just reminded me that Jesus isn't some religious figure. Like, he's a personal God that loves you. He cares about the little things, and he wants a relationship with us. So he showed me this picture, and I just felt so loved and blessed by it. 
Then we go to like the Garden of Gethsemane and we went to so many places and this is where Jesus was sweating blood. Remember, he was so distressed because that was the, the Thursday night before he was gonna go to the cross and I remember sitting there and uh, this is where, you know, he, he, he prayed three times, God, if, it's, if it can pass from me, let it pass. But they said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done and, and uh, you know, the disciples are falling asleep on him and we were there and there was like a, the stone that they believed that he would have touched and possibly even bled on. There was olive trees uh, right there and that would have been there when he was there because they can they last you know a couple of thousand years and so they said this was the place and you know around this area and these could have been the trees he was sitting up against and you're just there and you're just blown away and Gethsemane means olive press Gethsemane means olive press and so um, in those days they would take these large slabs of stone and they would press them down on crushed olives eventually squeezing out oil to make olive oil. It's actually quite famous over there. There's olive oil everywhere. There's olive trees everywhere. And it was just a picture of Jesus anticipating the sin of the world and the weight being pressed upon him so much so that it squeezed out drops of blood of, of the stress and, and, and just the agony of an, the anticipation of taking all of mankind's sin and what kind of weight that would be pressing down on him. And, and I, was, uh, I talked about on Good Friday, I'm so thankful for that moment in Gethsemane because it was that decision on Thursday that made Good Friday good. He made the decision to go to the cross despite his own will. He said, not my will, God, your will be done. And then we went to the, to the empty tomb that's still empty after thousands of years. And uh, people still pay to go see nothing. And, but, I, but I was happy to pay, man. I was like, I want to go see. I want to go see where Jesus isn't anymore. It's the place where he went and rose from the dead again, the garden tomb and making Christianity the only religion where there's a God who's still alive because he's not there. And it was amazing because when I read the Bible, you know, you read the Bible and he's put in this tomb and you don't realize where the tomb is. But when I got to, uh, when I got to the garden tomb, I realized that this tomb was in a vineyard. It was in a vineyard, it was in, it was in a winery. We saw this wine press that was thousands of years old that in the days of Jesus, they would have been making wine in this vineyard where he was buried. Wine in the Bible is about celebration and, and communion and newness of life. So Jesus died and rose again and now we can celebrate like Samuel was saying, we can celebrate his resurrection, we can have communi communion with him and we can have brand new life. We could have brand new life. And uh, it's amazing when you think about wine is a resurrected form of a dead grape that has been pulled from the vine, crushed, and produced a better version of itself. A better version of itself. Just like Jesus went into the tomb, he was resurrected in a brand new body after defeating death and sin, and now he's risen from the dead more powerful than ever before. It's a, it, like, the Bible prophesies about itself. Jesus comes onto this scene as a winemaker. His ministry is introduced at a party when he turns water into wine. And then he's born again in a vineyard that produces wine, celebrating new life. So it was like Jesus coming out party was like, hey, the, the new covenant is here. New life is here if you just believe in me. It's amazing what you, what you see when you go to this place and you start to see all the different places where he, actually, where he actually went. It's so powerful seeing the Bible in HD. 
But one of the, one of the interesting parts about this trip was our, our guide, Shraga. Shraga was a Jewish guy, and he was awesome. He was a former, you know, military guy, so he knew all about it, and, and he called us his Shraga lights. So we would like, you know, we're like roaming around the Holy Land, his Shraga lights, and he's telling us all these stories, and he was a funny, funny dude, and uh, he knew everything about the Bible. He knew way more about the Bible than I did. And, uh, and so he would tell us all the different stories about, uh, you know, uh, this area and what happened there, what the people were who were involved in it, what time frame it was, what the address is in the Bible. He would tell us all of these things. He would read the scriptures for us, tell us the stories behind it, all of these powerful places and events that took place in the Bible, but it meant nothing to him. He could read the scriptures and tell us the stories but it meant nothing, he felt nothing because he didn't believe in the Bible. He didn't believe in the New Testament, he was a Jewish guy. The Jews don't believe in the New Testament, they believe in the Old Testament, they believe in the, in the prophets and you know, the Torah and all of that, but they just don't believe, you know, uh, starting in Matthew, they don't believe any of that stuff. So he was reading the most powerful scriptures in the New Testament and it meant nothing to him. Jews don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They're still waiting. But it was, there were certain moments of time where, where Pastor Jurgen would, would break open the scriptures and we would be in a New Testament area where there was an event that happened. He'd start to read about it and then he'd start to do like many preaches about it. And we're all thinking, oh, Shraga's gonna get saved. Shraga, there's no way you can walk with us and hear Pastor Jurgen at all of these places and not get saved. And so there were moments where, when Pastor Jurgen would be preaching and he'd be crying. And we're like, oh, this is the moment. This is the moment, Shraga. But it was, like, it, was, it was like his spirit could recognize the word of God, but his brain was so bound in tradition and religion, he actually couldn't see it. He couldn't see it. And it's like you're looking at him and you go, do you realize that the Messiah was here. There was three, over 300 prophecies with over 400 characteristics, 40 just on the birth of Jesus. And he was right here and it's right here and you can't see it because your brain and your mind and your heart is bound and blocked by tradition and religion. It was mind boggling to, to experience this. It was like they have so elevated the religion and the tradition of men that they couldn't see God. They're still waiting for, for a soldier to come and battle and have a great victory over their enemies. So they missed, in looking for a soldier, they missed the savior that came as a servant. They missed it because they're so blinded by religion. He was right there, but they so elevated their, their religion as their master that they missed the Messiah. And so now thousands of years later, they're still trying to prove themselves. They're still trying to do all of these works and to transform themselves from the outside by wearing little hats and having beards and the clothes that they wear. They're so serving the law still after all of this time which isn't like us. We're not serving the law. We've been freed from the law because of what Jesus did. And now we're not motivated by works, but by grace. We're free from the confines of the law, not to sin, but to be righteous. 
We should be motivated to be righteous because of what Jesus did, not motivated to sin. And so, so, so the, these, these people, these religions all over the world are bound by doing work after work after work, trying to please a God who they don't even expect a return conversation from. They don't even expect him to speak to them back, but yet they're trying to wear this and to do that and to pray this many times and to face in this direction. Yet they have no connection with God. They don't have that communion that we get to have. It's crazy to think about all of these people who are trying to be accepted by their God where our God said to Jesus, his son, before he did any ministry, before he did any miracle, before he preached any sermon, he said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus starts from a place of acceptance, not work towards a place of acceptance, and that's how we start. We start from a place of acceptance and value. We don't have to work towards that. God created Adam and Eve and he blessed them before they did anything. Before they did anything, we're accepted. You know, the fact that you believe in him pleases him because we please him by faith. And the fact that you said, Jesus, I believe in you. I wanna follow you. I wanna invite you into my life. You are pleasing him. He is proud of you. He's proud of all of those people tonight that made that decision. He's been pursuing you for your entire life. All of heaven has been celebrating. He's been celebrating. The very word religious means a person bound by monastic vows. A person bound. We are not bound, but we are free. We are not bound, but we are free. Jesus came to set us free from religion and tradition and formulas and works. The title of my message tonight is Free Religion. You might be thinking, man, is that in the Bible somewhere? Maybe in Leviticus, Revelation, maybe it's in the message version. It's not in the Bible. It's just I like one word titles. And I didn't want to say free from religion. And I also think that there is a value in religion. So I don't want to be fully separate. We can talk about that more in a minute. But free religion is the title of my message. Here's what Jesus said about religion and religious people in Mark 7, 5 to, 5 to 9 in the New King James. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands. Man, what's, what a dumb thing to be caught up on. Did you wash your hands? Unless you're in the bathroom, maybe you should wash your hands. Especially before you go in. He answered and said to them, well, did Isaiah, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? It was like, I am calling you out. You guys know the Bible. You guys know Isaiah. This is what he says. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things that you do. He said to them, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Verse 13, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down from generations and many such things that you do. 
So Jesus is saying, you guys have actually replaced the word of God with your tradition of of man that you have passed down. I'm standing in front of you. I'm reading a prophecy and you can't see it because you've elevated the tradition of men and you think I'm supposed to come as as a mighty warrior destroying your enemies, but I'm right here, I'm in front of you and you can't see it. So you've made the word of God of no avail in your life. Religion is actually what killed the word of God. Jesus is the word, and it was religion that killed him. Mark 8, 31 says, And Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after these days rise again. Religion will always kill the power of the word of God in your life. When you start to live under the law, the word of God has no more power because Jesus already delivered us from the law. He already delivered us from the law, and so we have to make sure that we're in grace, not under law. Colossians 3.3 says, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So the fact that Jesus died set us free from religion, set us free from the law. Now we're motivated by grace. As soon as you remove yourself from under grace, from under the blood of Jesus, from being hidden in him, you now come out from under his covering and now you are vulnerable to the devil. Now you are easily accused. Now the Bible says he walks around like a roaring lion seeing whom he may may devour. That is now you because you are out from underneath the covering of Jesus. But if you are in Christ, you are hidden in him and the devil can't find you to devour you. So as soon as you hear yourself start saying, man, I'm not worthy. Man, if I can just do this, maybe God will use me. Man, if I can just do, man, I can't believe how I was brought up. That's when the devil will come and say, yeah, you're not usable by God. He'll start to accuse you. He'll start to lie to you because you've come out from the grace of Jesus Christ. So now you you need to get in there and say, no, 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 no. Maybe I'm not worthy, but I am now because of what Jesus did. You step back under into grace. Now you're hidden in Christ, and now the devil has no power or authority over you. In fact, he can't even find you. When he looks at you, he sees the face of Jesus. He says, ah, I ain't going to mess with that person. That person is hidden in Christ. I can't devour that person. We can never let religion dictate our life. We can never let it dictate our life. Um, but we have to let faith dictate our life. Mark 7, 24 to 30. I love this woman. It says, from there, Jesus arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. This was the only time, by the way, that Jesus left the territory of the Jews. He was called to the Jews. He was called to his people, not to the Gentiles. That came later. So he was called to minister to his people, to the Jews. So he went outside of the Jewish territory and says he entered into a house and wanted no one to know it but he could not be hidden. He's Jesus. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. Oftentimes in the New Testament, you'll find that people come and they fall at the feet of Jesus. So they, they fall and they worship Jesus. The reason that's powerful is because when you fall and you worship Jesus, when you honor Jesus for who he is, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, you actually elevate him into a place where now he can minister into your life. It's actually an invitation that you're giving him by elevating him to who he is to come and invade your situation and your circumstance, and you'll find that faith comes on the inside of you when you begin to worship. 
don't miss the worship. And worship's not just singing, but don't, don't miss the worship. Don't, don't come into his presence with praise and worship and thanksgiving, and you'll find faith rise up on the inside of you. So she comes in and she worships him. And the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth. So she wasn't one of the people that Jesus came to minister to. And she kept asking. Say, keep asking. It says she kept asking him to cast a demon out of her daughter. So I can just see Jesus is like, I'm not supposed to go to you. I'm not supposed to go to you. But she just kept asking, kept asking. It says, but Jesus said to her, let the children be filled first, the people of Israel that he came to minister to. Let them be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now, this was actually a common expression. They would call them actually the wild dogs. It was the more wild kind of derogatory statement. So Jesus turned it down a little bit to say little dogs, but he was still being quite upfront and derogatory. I mean, you're a little dog, he says. But I love what she says. She answered him and said to him, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. She owned it. She owned it. It was like, hey, you're not worthy. Exactly, that's why I'm a Christian and I invited Jesus into my life because he makes me worthy. She just owned it. She just owned it and she said, all right, I know, I know, I know, I don't deserve it, but I know you can heal, I've heard about you. Then he said to her, for this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon had gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. This woman was not limiting herself to religion, was not limiting herself to what the world said, she, how she should act or tradition. She saw Jesus and she knows what pulls heaven to earth is passion and is faith. And so she went after it and she said, I ain't letting you leave until you bless me. I'm not letting you leave until you heal my daughter. Just like Jacob in the Old Testament said, Jesus, I ain't letting you go until you bless me. You're the only one that can do it. I don't care what religion says. I want what you have. So she kept asking and her daughter got set free. I like this woman. She's crazy. She's crazy. And I love too that Jesus wasn't so religious. He came for his people but he wasn't so religious that he couldn't cast a demon out of a Gentile woman's daughter. He was able to be interrupted even in his assignment to heal this, this woman. I like that. And then in the next, the very next story in the Bible, it says that uh, in, in, the, in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus took a mute and a deaf person and he sticks his fingers in the deaf person's ear. He spits on his hand and touches the, the mute person's tongue and the person begins to hear and begins to talk. I think Jesus just did a whole bunch of things that were so not religious and so unpredictable so that we wouldn't get caught up in formulas and religion and tradition. He just started doing crazy stuff. Like, there's no formula for this. Just stick, stick your finger in his ear. Spit on him. I'm not condoning spitting on people, but I'm just saying. He just did stuff that was different. Like, he, he prayed and laid hands on some people to get them healed. He just prayed and didn't lay hands on some people to get them healed. And then he just laid hands and didn't pray on some people to get them healed. Like, he just did everything. He just did all different, all different ways. He touched the lepers and he healed them, which was so not religious. He, the teacher, wasn't supposed to touch the leper who was very unclean. 
Because in the Old Testament, they would worry, what's on him is going to get on you. But Jesus was like, uh-uh, what's on me is going to get in them. And he's going to get healed. And so he went and hugged the lepers and loved the lepers because he's so not religious. He didn't care. He wasn't scared of some leprosy. He made mud, some clay, and then he put it in somebody's eyes and they started to see. He touched, there was a funeral coming out of the city. They're carrying the fu- the, this little boy in a casket and Jesus comes up and touches the casket, not the person, but there was so much life coming out of him. The, the power of God went through the casket, through the cloth, through the clothes, and that little boy got raised from the dead right there and he disrupted a whole funeral. He's so not religious. He's so organic and full of power. He walked on water just because he could. And this is my belief. When he, raised, when he got raised from the dead, the Bible never says that the stone was rolled away and then he walked out. Read it. Read it. The Bible doesn't say that. What I believe happened... What I believe happened was he got up, saw the rock was there, and he just rolled right through it. And then when the angel of the Lord came, the Bible says, then the stone got rolled away, and he said, hey, Jesus isn't here anymore. The reason I believe that is because, number one, the Bible doesn't say it was moved and then he walked out. Number two, if you read after that, he goes into the disciples' room, and he didn't use the door. He walked through the wall, and he's like, how you like me now? Check it out. He just did stuff that was crazy so that we wouldn't get caught up, you know? We wouldn't get caught up. It freaked him out. It freaked him out. He doesn't want us to be bound of formulas and, and, and tradition and religion, and, but we make rules for ourselves. We make laws for ourselves. We actually put limits on ourselves because of how we're taught or the religious things we believe or the tradition that's been passed down. I played baseball for for a long time, and when I when I was playing, baseball players are very very superstitious. Anybody base, play baseball around here? Very superstitious, right? It's like you have a good game, and you're like, hmm, what underwear was I wearing last night? <laughs> How many times did I take practice swings in the box? How many times did I take off my gloves and reattach them? Did I eat chicken or was that steak before that game? Did I walk up to this song or to that song? What undershirt was I wearing? These are conversations I've had with myself. (laughs) And then when you get into the box and you realize, crap, I didn't take as many practice swings with that same weight as I did last game when I was four for four, so I don't feel as qualified to hit right now. So you disempower yourself because you didn't use the formula because you're bound by tradition and religion, and now you feel insufficient to get up to the bat and hit the ball. It's very superstitious, but God doesn't want us to be stuck in formulas. If you've prayed for somebody and anointed them with oil and they got healed, that is amazing. But what happens if you don't have oil? Can you still pray for somebody? I know the Bible says that disciples use oil. I know the elders are supposed to come and use oil and anoint the head and pray that the prayer of faith will save the sick. But notice it says the prayer of faith, not the oil will save the sick. So what happens if you go to pray and you don't have oil? Can you still pray? Yeah, you can. You can. You can't get bound in this formula because Mark 16 says they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. It doesn't say anything about oil. It doesn't even say anything about praying. I'm just saying when we read every word of the Bible, it becomes more magnificent and more crazy. If you, if you, if you, if you go and you... Uh, 
you, you get breakthrough doing communion. That's awesome. I love communion. We take communion at home. We take communion here. I love the tradition of communion every month. But that's not the only way you can get breakthrough. What if you don't have juice and a stale wafer? Can you still get breakthrough? Can you just step into a place of authority because you're a son and a daughter and take authority over that situation, speak into that situation, prophesy to the dry bones and tell them to wake up? Can you do that without juice and without bread? I think you can. I think you can because the juice and the bread isn't what sets people free. It's what they represented that set people free. That's why it's powerful to do communion because you remember what he did so you can stand on that word and say, sickness, get off of my life. Devil, get off of my life. Jesus died for me. He gave us back for me. He set me free. There's no formulas. There's no formulas. If you think you have to fast to get something from God, I'm just going after some other sacred cows. If you think you have to fast for 41 days, because greater works will we do than him. <laughs> if you think you have to fast to get something from God, you don't have to. If you think you have to pray seven times facing that way to get something from God, you don't have to. Fasting, Jesus said, the, 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 the religious came to Jesus and said, why aren't your disciples fasting? Like John's disciples. Jesus is like, because I'm here. Why would I make them starve themselves while I'm here? But when I go, they're gonna fast. They're gonna fast. So that tells me fasting is to get closer to God. Fasting is to, is to draw near to him so he'll draw near to me. Because when he was close to them, he said, you don't need to fast. If all you had to do was fast for 40 days to get that thing or that thing or that thing, everybody would do it. It's not about that. Seek him first and all these things will be added to you. When you fast, your goal is to get close to him because when you're close to him, stuff just starts to get added to your world. Breakthrough just starts to happen. Now, can you fast and focus on something? Yeah, totally. You can, but let's not get in a formula. What if you don't have 40 days? What if you need an answer right now? Let's not get into formulas. Just because it worked one time, you don't have to do it the same way last time. Don't be superstitious like dumb baseball players. There are no formulas because God never wanted to be put in a box because that's where dead people are and he got up. Dead people are in boxes. Jesus got up. There are no formulas and traditions that we need to live by. But the reason I said free religion it's because I do think there is some value in tradition, in religion, in formulas, in disciplines. And I think sometimes that we, we hear because we're spirit-filled, free Christians, we pendulum swing to the other side and we start just flirting with sin all the time in the gray. And we're just flirting. Because just because we're free doesn't mean I am not fully committed to being holy. We are a holy people. Uh, I, my mission is to be righteous, not by my own strength. The reason the law is there is so you can see what sin looks like. And you can say, oh, okay, that's sin. And then you realize, I can't do that without Jesus and the power of God. And so we, we pendulum swing. And then we start making excuses for ourselves saying, well, my heart's desperately wicked. It says that in the Bible. But if you read the Bible, you'll realize that's in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Bible says those who are in Christ, all thing, old things have passed away, all things have become new. 
and that the spirit of his son came to live in your heart. So if you're telling yourself and excusing your behavior because your heart is desperately wicked, guess what you just came out from under and into the law. So you need to get back into hidden in Christ. Or we start using Romans seven about Paul and how he wanted to do this, but he couldn't. Now he wanted to do that, but he couldn't because sin overtook him, la, la, la. Guess what? Jesus didn't die on a cross so that sin could have power over you. Jesus died on the cross so you could have power over it. In fact, you already died to that, and now you're alive together in Christ Jesus. He was talking about a fully unredeemed person. You've been redeemed. You've been filled with the Holy Ghost and with power. Let's not pendulum swing and just throw out devotion and tradition and religion because we're free. There's a value in it. There's a value in it. We should be committed to reading the Bible. We should be committed to coming to church, to worshiping, to praying. That's why I'm such a big fan of the drop zone. The drop zone is a, by definition, a targeted place where food, supplies, and soldiers are dropped. Let me just tell you, we need a place that we can go for a specific amount of time to unplug from this world and to plug into that one. You need to go get some food in the drop zone. You need to go to this place where you can connect with God and get some food. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of God. You wanna know the will of God? You get in a drop zone away from the busyness of life and say, God, give me the food. I need to know what the will of God is for my life. I don't have time to do stuff that's not the will of God. We don't have time, you need supplies. Sometimes you need supplies. You need to get to that place and plug in and, and recharge yourself. Have a fresh encounter like uh, McCracken was talking about last week. Get that fresh encounter. Maybe you need a word from heaven. You need to go to that place and get some supplies. Maybe you need, you're facing something and you need soldiers from heaven to be dropped on your behalf. Heavenly hosts, maybe you need to release angels. Ask God, God, can you release angels to surround me? I'm telling you, you can encounter that stuff in the drop zone. There's something about living a devoted life. We can't just throw it out. And when I say devoted and, and religion and tradition and formulas and, and all of that stuff, all that stuff can also help us get into a formula or a discipline or a, or a flow. You get up in the morning and you read the word and you pray and you worship and, and get into that flow or that religious act that you do every day or you know, whatever you wanna call it, whatever you wanna call it because devotion is the key I believe, to fulfilling the will of God. There was a guy in the Bible named Samson. And we know Samson, you know, the Holy Ghost would come on him and he would have uh, crazy strength. And he was a Nazarite. And the Nazarite, they were devoted people. They were separated people. And they were separated by three things. This was their religious things that they would do, their acts. And they, would, they were uh, called to not cut their hair, not hang around dead things, and not drink. But we find Samson in the story of his life in Judges and, and the Bible says that he, he kills a lion and then he goes and takes honey out of the dead carcass and he eats the honey, kind of you know going against that part of his devotion. And then the Bible talks about him going to feasts and different things and, and uh, they say that he, he probably would have drank in those kind of scenarios and so he probably drank some wine or some whatever else they had in those times. And then he had one piece of his devotion left and that was his hair. And you all know the story, he meets Delilah and Delilah comes to him and she convinces him to tell her, what is it, what is the source of your strength? 
And he said, the source of my strength is my devotion, my hair. I've never cut my hair. And so she tells the Philistines about it and they come and they cut off his devotion. They cut off his hair. The first thing that happens when they cut off his devotion is he loses his strength. And then they come and they gouge out his eyes and he loses his vision. When we separate ourselves from a life of devotion, we lose our strength. We lose a vision for our future. We have to have a life of devotion. We have to have a life of worship. We have to have a life of word. We have to have a life of prayer. And it doesn't have to be a fancy place. It can be your car, it can be your backyard, it can be your garage, it can be your closet, it can be whatever. Just make a time and a place to devote yourself to Him, to revere Him. We should have reverence for the house of God. I wanna invite the worship team up to sing a song. And I want you all to stand to your feet. I wanna give us an opportunity to reconnect. To, to make a decision to live a life of devotion once again. And I want you to feel free to get out of your seat if you need to, come down to the altar. If you need to get on your knees, if you need to lift your hands, if you just wanna sit in your chair. But I wanna give you an opportunity to reconnect with him. And I want you to think about this. The spirit of God is, is here and he's hovering. He's here, but he's also in you. And the Bible says that he gives life to our mortal bodies. I want you to think about connecting with him there, but also connecting with him here. And I want you to sing and devote yourself to him, to him tonight. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our pastors, team, and what we do at C3 San Diego, go to C3SanDiego.com. 